Amen. So uh, I want to, before we start, I want to say uh, last week I got, um, I got a lot of, I got a lot of response back from the sermon last week, and I just wanted to say I really appreciate that. I got a lot of great compliments. People really appreciated uh, the sermon last week talking about the local church and God nurturing us and us nourishing us and us nurturing one another. And so I really appreciate it. Oh, it's always a blessing for a pastor when people respond to your sermon. So I want to say thank you. Thank you for all of the, all the good words and of encouragement that you gave me last week. And so today, this week, as we talk about giving, I hope that you'll hold on to those fond feelings from last week. <laughs> Remember those. He'll help us get through this week. And then next week, we'll be on to something else, all right? <laughs> Amen. So let's stand, if you would, if you are able, out of respect for the reading of God's word. Uh, we're going to read from two passages today, from chapter 8 of uh, 2 Corinthians and chapter 9, two selected passages from those two chapters. And this is all um, surrounding us talking about our membership vow where we promise or we covenant, we make vows to support financially the mission and ministries of this church. So here we go. This is, uh, let's listen intently together to God's inerrant word. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
So I don't know. I think talking about money and finances and giving in the church is one of the most like uncomfortable, difficult things that we have to do as a family conversation. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just me. But like when Aaron came up, when Aaron was read the law earlier, and he read that passage from Malachi, you could just almost feel the whole room just get tense. <laughs> like what? <laughs> I've been it. Um, there's probably reasons for that, right? There's probably some really good reasons why there's tension around it. And one is that there's uh, definitely a lack of trust with the church. When I first came into ministry in 2008, it was the height of something called the Lakeland Revivals, where an evangelist named Todd Bentley had come to Florida from, from Canada and was supposedly producing all sorts of divine miracles and healings and they claimed to have raised, raised, they'd raised 27 people resurrected from the dead. Uh, at the height of the revivals there, 400,000 people had come from all over the country, all over the world to attend. Another 1.2 million people had watched on TV uh, until on August 11th in 2008, it all fell apart when Nightline came and, and did a, an expose on the revivals and couldn't find a single person that had actually been healed. And then it came, Todd Bentley himself came out and confessed that he was having uh, an affair and several other items of, of problems and, and the whole thing kind of fell apart. And at the height though, at that, of that revival, they were spending $15,000 a day just on expenses to rent a giant air-conditioned tent that held 10,000 people. And the way they did it was they would come out and promise that if you would sow a seed of faith of $1,000, God is bound to multiply that seed of faith 10 times with money. Straight up, old school, OG televangelist tactics the kind of tactics that have been draining your grandparents' bank accounts for decades. And so there's a big lack of trust in the church. The idea of giving to the church, there's always that suspicion that somehow this is kind of a con or somehow the church is abusing or misusing the money. Uh, there's also a lack of clarity. Another problem is that most of the passages that are usually quoted in defense of giving to the church, including most of the one I just read, are really primarily talking about giving to the relief of the poverty of the saints. It's really more talking about the diaconate. And so uh, there are a lot of groups that have said, come out and just said straight up, New Testament never says anything about giving to the mission and ministry of the church, much less paying pastors. Everything should be voluntary. Everybody should be bivocational. Uh, and that's how we should do this in small groups of voluntary force. And third, there's a lack of historical consistency in it. In different periods of the church, uh, the church has gone about doing this in different ways. In the early church, it was, you know, trading goods and services and hospitality and taking care of, of, of who, those who preached and taught the word. In the Middle Ages, at least by the time of Charlemagne, they made it a straight-up law in the church where you got taxed 10% of your goods and services and fields and crops and animals. And if you didn't pay up, you would be excommunicated. And then at the time of the Reformation, it was the state, the government paid the pastors. And it's only been really fairly recently in the modern church that pastors and the mission and ministry of the church have been 
uh, self-supported and funded by the congregations, voluntarily by the congregations. And so when you take all those things, there's a lack of trust and a lack of clarity, uh, a lack of historical consistency. Those things together, they almost create like this perfect opportunity and excuse that just dovetails right in with the primary American sin, which is consumerism and greed. And it gives us these ready-made great excuses as to why we shouldn't have to give or why we shouldn't have, we should have, we shouldn't have to give. Uh, and so that's kind of, the, the, that's kind of the, the tangled knot that we have to pull apart to even get to the bottom of this. What is the Bible actually even talking about when it comes to giving? So really the big questions that come up are, first of all, do we even have a biblical obligation to support the mission and ministries of the church? Or is everything really just talking about giving to the poor? That's question one. Question two is, if they do have an obligation to support the mission and the ministries, how much? Is the tithe, the 10% rule still in effect or not? And the third thing, third thing I want to try and convince you of, uh, is that giving is really, is this beautiful opportunity that God has given us rather than a terrible burden upon us, okay? So that's, that's our roadmap. That's what we're going to do. First, uh, do we even have an obligation to support the mission and ministries? Second, if we do, how much are we supposed to give? And third, why is giving a beautiful opportunity rather than a terrible affliction upon us? So first one is this. Do we really even have a biblical obligation to support the mission and ministries of the church? Uh, or is it really just about giving to support the poor? One of my favorite Babylon Bee articles was an article about a church board who was investigating the lavish perch, the pastor's lavish purchase of a 2007 Toyota Corolla. <laughs> Which I, it was super funny for us because Nisa drives a 2007 Toyota Corolla, right? And at the time, I, had a, I think I had a 2001 Crown Victoria ex-police old police car. And uh, so it really hit Hiram that this, this would be considered this, an extravagant purchase by the pastor. Why is that funny? Why was it a funny joke? Because... Because it, like, it brings out into the light that like weird suspicion that the, everybody kind of has about paying pastors and pastor's salary and paying ministries that, you know, a car that's, you know, barely running is some extravagant expense, right? So first let's answer the question. Is there even, is there even support for giving to mission and ministries. And first thing, first thing I should want to say before we even get into that is that there are tons of passages talking about giving to the poor in the church and giving to, in, to the poor in the church, basically talking about the diaconal fund, which is um, in large part one of, the most, one of the biggest forgotten ministries in the American church altogether. Uh, most churches don't have a fund, a lot of, a lot of churches, I mean, no longer have a fund where, where the congregation gives and then that fund is then redirected to care for the needs of the congregation when somebody can't pay their rent that month or somebody's car unexpectedly blows up or somebody gets behind on their bills or they're in fi real financial trouble. All the way from the beginning, the church 
used to fund that, or used to have a, would have a fund to take care of the needs and the, uh, uh, the financial needs of the congregation, and that's what deacons do. Today, in our Q&A, we'll have open questions about our particularization, and I expect somebody's going to ask me, what, did, what are the deacons and what do they do? Well, that's what they do. The deacons care for the material needs of the congregation, and one of the big things they do is they manage a fund of people's givings, giving that money back to the congregation, giving it back to people who are in need. We had a friend, I had, we had a friend who used to be part of the Mormon church, uh, LDS Church. And LDS Church is very good about taking care of their people and making sure that nobody is going without. It's something they do very well, which is to our shame, right? We had this friend come and join our church when we were at New Life, and uh, he got into some financial trouble in New Life, which has a robust diaconate fund, just, just kind of swooped in and helped him out and paid these bills that he was behind on, and he came up to me, and he was like, wow, man, that was some Mormon stuff. You guys out-Mormoned the Mormons. Uh, and so, man, we should, that should be our goal. We should be the Christian church. The Orthodox Christian church should be known for loving one another in tangible ways, including and not limited to, but it should be known that we take care of the financial needs of our people. We have a diaconal fund. If you guys get in trouble, let us know. It's there to help. So the first thing I want to say is there are tons of passages that talk about our giving being for the relief of, the, of people inside the church. And so let's not gloss over that or forget that that's true. That is true. However, there are also a lot of passages that talk about specifically supporting the mission and the ministry of this church. There are principles. Uh, for example, in the Old Testament, the tithe... I actually learned this this week. The tithe itself, that 10% tithe that Israel gave, was specifically, it specifically went to the Levites, who were the ministers of Israel. They were the teachers of Israel, the people who did the service uh, in the temple. That 10% wasn't part of, there were other t uh, gifts and offerings that were given, but that 10% was specifically the way that Israel paid its ministers and supported the mission uh, of, and the ministries of the Old Testament church. Uh, and although that principle, uh, it's a, although the 10% the thing may or may not be there, the principle carries into the New Testament. How do we know? Because Paul speaks about this. He says, for example, right, in our, in our, in our passage that we read in verses 11 and 12, he says, he says, which through us, your gift, will produce thanksgiving for God for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing when thanksgivings for God and ministry to people, in the ministry to the people that the apostles are uh, engaged in. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And that's an old, that's an ancient way of saying, make sure they're paid well or paid, in, uh, paid, paid fair wages so that they can live and support their families. And how do we know that? Because he goes to Old Testament principles right after that. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and a laborer deserves his wages. Which is kind of weird to compare pastors to oxen. I mean, maybe that's not so weird. Uh, but he's saying it's a principle. It's a principle. The oxen who do is doing this work is also should be sharing in the grain, sharing in the material needs. 
First uh, Corinthians nine. He also says this. He says, um, "Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living?" Meaning that he's, in, he's, he's implying the principle that most of God minister in the New Testament church were paid for that service, and he and Barnabas had chosen to abstain from that. Uh, and then he goes on by, you know, to clarify that by saying, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating its fruits? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? And then he quotes Moses, getting drawing principles in from the Old Testament. And then he finally says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we, meet, we reap material things? And Paul says essentially the same thing in Galatians 6.6. 6. So there are a lot of verses that talk about specifically the congregation or the people uh, financially supporting the mission and the ministry of Christ's church. That's super clear. However, the method isn't clear. <laughs> Because it does, it changes from age to age. It changes from culture and economic, whatever the, the culture and the economics of that people group in time, oftentimes the method changes. And so uh, that is, that's what becomes, uh, that's what becomes unclear. Uh, that's where the confusion comes in. And that's where it mixes with doubt and suspicion and greed. And that's what causes uh, often people to say, no, we shouldn't do that. For example, let me, let, me give you an, let me give you an example of how, uh, an example that shows how these things change based on cultures and economy, but the principle remains the same. In China, the house church movement uh, has exploded and just, uh, you know, ch charged all through China where the Chinese church is organized uh, loosely around small house churches in giant church. I mean, ch the churches themselves are regional some of them are millions and millions of people strong, but most of the leaders lead a small group of people in a house and they're bivocational. They're not paid or they're, you know, maybe traded some gifts and, and services. There was a famous guy named Watchman Nee uh, who had a ministry, uh, a giant ministry in China, and he, long story short, brought what he called the local church movement into the United States. And the idea was this works so well in China it's got to work here in America. And they had the same model. Small churches met in houses. Uh, the pastor was, uh, was, was not paid. Uh, and it, it flourished at first, but then it, and, but then it kind of floundered and died out because their, their ability to minister and reach in this culture and in this economy was limited. It was constricted by the amount of, by the finances of the church and by their, um, the fact that all the pastors also had to work. And so what worked really well, here's the point, what worked really well in China in a rural economy may not work that well and doesn't work as well in the United States in a, very, in a, in a cash economy, in a very different economy, in a very different culture. And so although it's totally true that the methods that we use to support the mission and ministry of the church can change throughout the ages and throughout cultures and economies for right now in this time and place in the Western world, this is the model that's working best, and that's what we got. Now, maybe that, that could be changing right around the corner. We're starting to look at, as the church changes in the United States, we could easily get to a place where we go out of conventional spiritual warfare into guerrilla warfare, and we have small 
house units. That could totally change and happen, but for right now, the best way that we can go about ministering and expanding the kingdom and expanding the ministry is to have churches and to have ministers who are free to engage in that. And, and that's just, that's the bottom line. The reality is we can be as efficient as we possibly can. We can be as talented as we possibly can in what we do. But there is the, the, the limitation mark of how, much, how many people we can reach and how far we are able to expand our ministry is limited by our finances at some level in the West. So that's why it's important for us to give. And that's why the Bible supports it. And this is our method in this place and time. So second thing, if that's true, and I believe it is, I hope I convince you that it is, is how much? Is the tithe still in effect or not? It's one of the most common questions uh, that I get. Is the tithe still in effect? Tithe really mean, it means tenth. There's this principle throughout the Old Testament where Israel was called to give a tenth, people in Israel were called to give a tenth of, of their produce, of their livestock, basically their, their wealth. Uh, it wasn't the only thing the Israelites had to give. When you added everything together, it was more like 23%, but that 10%, as I said earlier, was specifically to the Levites who were the ministers who ran the ministry and mission of the Old Testament church. So people are, they say, is that still in effect? Are we, are we still obligated to go 10% or, are we, or, or not? And here's what, the, here's what people are really saying. <laughs> They're saying, are we still obligated to give 10%? Or can we give less than that? <laughs> no one's ever come up to me and said, I really feel constrained by this 10% rule because I feel like I want to give 25% and I feel like, you know, this rule's really constraining me and I can only do 10. Is, there, is that still in effect? Nobody's ever said that to me. <laughs> so is it in effect or not? Well, let's look at some fun facts, okay? Whether it's in effect or not, here's the reality of the situation on the ground. Uh, as, a whole, as a whole, the American church gives, on average, 2.5% of our income. Uh, out of that 2.5%, uh, about 25% of Christians don't give. Out of that 2.5% of who do, about 5% is given to missions, and of that 5%, about 1% is given for missions to unreached people groups. This is one of my favorite facts, which happens to be about the same amount of money that Americans spend on Halloween costumes for their pets. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> now, but listen, listen, and I, I read this in an article talking about all this, and I think this is a really good point. We're in our cultural bubble, like giving, uh, giving is valued, but there, it's, it's I, really usually at a much smaller scale, and so when people for people that are giving 2.5, 3, 4% of their income to the church, they're usually, those are people who are giving thousands of dollars more than their friends and family are giving. And to, to, to us, it seems, in our cultural bubble, that seems like a big deal, a lot. And actually, it really is. And so rather than like complaining about, well, people don't give blah, 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 instead of that, like we should start out by saying, by, by thinking about what, all the amazing things that God does with that 2.5%. Think about it. Everything 
that we have available to us. All the content, all the websites, all the free materials, all the churches, all the biblical counseling that you are availed of, all the pastoral support, all the sermons, all the teaching materials, all of that God does with 2.5% of our income. And it is massive and global. It's amazing what God does with that money, right? Which kind of begs the question, what could we do with four times as much? That's something that gets me excited when I think about that. So what's the, what's the answer? What's the answer? Short answer is there's nowhere in the New Testament that says the 10% rule is still in effect. And so we have to go off of principles, okay? So the Bible does say that the idea of the con congregations giving to support the ministry and the mission of the church is still in effect. Uh, however, there are principles that we're engaged in that, that we have to work through in order to figure out how, how much each of us uh, individually or in his families should give. And the first one, the biggest overriding principle is the idea that God is the owner of all things and that everything we have is something or is, is are things that God has given to us to steward uh, as stewards, not as owners. Uh, and so the idea of giving is really giving God back a portion of what he's given to us. All kind of verses about how God owns all things. Uh, all kinds of Jesus parables talking about being stewards of the things that God has given us. About parables about uh, being rewarded for being good stewards that God, if, you know, if, we f if we're found to be trustworthy in unrighteous money, uh, or, you know, it, it's really a negative statement in the New Testament. It says if you're not, if you can't be trustworthy in unrighteous money, how could you be trusted with greater things? Well, conversely, that means that we can be trusted with money. God will trust us with even more precious things, like being a, more a part of the ministry of the gospel in the world. Uh, and other things. So the first overriding principle is that when we're giving, we're really giving God back some of what he's given us. The second one is that Jesus, in everywhere when Jesus talks about laws in the Old Testament uh, and then how those laws apply in the New Testament, he, he opens us up into freedom, but he never opens us up into freedom to do less. He always opens us up into freedom to do more and not from a law or a letter or a command, but from a grateful heart out of love for Christ and for God. He says, you know, really the intent of the law isn't that you just not kill somebody, it's that you don't hate them. And in fact, that you cultivate love for everyone, including your enemies. He calls us, he, he opens us up into freedom. Uh, and then in that freedom, we're given the opportunity uh, motivated by our love for God uh, to live out uh, the beauty of the law of freedom in real and tangible ways in the world. He says in this passage, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, it's really between you and God. Think about how much has God given me? How much has God prospered me? And then look at your situation and your surroundings and your resources and you say, I am able to give this much. And another part of it is you give sacrificially. 
You give in a way that like is a sacrifice for you. These people in Macedonia were straight up crazy. They said, it's, Paul's, Paul's like amazed at them because they weren't wealth. They were like in extreme poverty under heavy persecution and yet they, were, they, gave, uh, they gave out of their poverty. They gave out of what they, they, they stretched and gave what they had and even more than what they were able to do. Uh, and the last principle is this, that uh, there's a principle of, of giving as a first fruits offering, meaning that we give from the beginning of your wealth. And this is how, this is convicting, convicting for me, for I think all of us, because most of us, here's how American consumerism, really, I, I think, here's how it affects me, how, here, and I think here's how it affects us. We go about our business of our lives and we're thinking, where, where can we live? What kind of cars can we drive? What can we, you know, what schools can we send our kids to? Uh, you know, what kind of entertainment can we do? Uh, and we figure those things out. And then once we have those things kind of figured out, then we say, okay, how much do I have left over to give? And then we figure out our giving from the back end of that. Well, the principle of fr first fruits, it says that first we figure out what, would, what is it possible for us to give and then we build our lives, what kind of housing we can afford, what kind of cars we can drive, what kind of schools we can go to, how we can save, what we can do with our entertainment. We build that after the fact. That's the principle of giving uh, from first fruits. Here's, the, here's the, the most astonishing thing about this, pa this passage. It says, Paul says, let me just read, I'm going to read the whole thing. He says, um, that these people in Macedonia, they, they, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were literally, even though they were impoverished uh, and they were stretching, and it was a sacrifice for them to give, they were begging Paul to be able, letting, please let us participate, please let us give some money. They were begging him to do it. it were, there was real joy in it. They were joyful about their giving and that you read that and you're like, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone in their right mind be joyful about sacrificially giving uh, money in a way that, that caused uh, their standard of living to be less than it could be? Why would anyone ever do that? And the last part, part three, I want to answer, try to answer that question. Why is this a beautiful opportunity and not a terrible burden upon us? Why is that? Paul ends this whole passage by saying, saying this. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift to us. He like ends the whole, that whole passage by saying, basically, everything I'm just talking about, about us having the opportunity to give and participate in the mission and ministry of the church is God's gift to us. Isn't that amazing? Aren't you amazed? <laughs> well, here's what he means. This is what he's talking about. I mean, first, and primarily, he's saying that this is giving. Giving gives us the opportunity to participate in the ministry of the gospel. Listen to what he says. He goes, in verses 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, 
but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In the biggest, realest, clearest sense, uh, like I said earlier, everything that we give, every bit of our giving, from whatever it is, from our time, from our money, from our uh, service to the church, all of it is in response to the greatest gift that anyone's ever received from Jesus giving us the gift of life, from Jesus giving us forgiveness of sins, Jesus giving us his righteousness. And, and that ensuring and guaranteeing that we will belong to the kingdom of heaven forever. That's the best ticket in town. And that has been given to us freely by Jesus. And Paul is calling us to remember that. Look at what Jesus sacrificed to give you life. And so anything we could do is only a, it's the palest comparison of that. And our motivation isn't ever to get something. Our motivation is to give something, to participate in that, in the beauty of that. Not just for us, but for the world. Listen. There's this mini-series that we've been watching called The Chosen on uh, Pure Flix, right? Pure Flix. Uh, it is a, um, it's a mini-series. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a series that was created by Christian directors and producers who were super skilled in their craft and wanted to, to create a, a binge-worthy series on the life of Jesus, and we've been watching it, and it is amazing. It is artistic. It is uh, the way the, the actors are phenomenal. The storylines are like filling in behind the blanks. The characters are believable, relatable. Uh, it's, it is just sucks you and draws you in to figure out who is this, who is this guy, Jesus? Here's the thing. That TV series was crowdfunded. They came out by saying, hey, we want to produce something like this as a ministry tool to spread the gospel, to, uh, to, and just to, to bring the gospel message, to bring the gospels to a huge range of audiences who would never get it in any other way. And it was so understandable. It was, it was so easy to see that vision of how this particularly was, was casting the net and expanding the kingdom in this really beautiful artistic way, preaching the gospel, that it became the, t the number one crowdfunded TV movie series of all time, $9 million. Boom. They did the whole first series, it's already done, it's now it's out. It's amazing. Why? People saw that, they saw the possibility, they saw how that was advancing the gospel. People weren't getting any product for it. There was no like Kickstarter perks. It was just the only payoff was that you could say, I invested in this and it brought the gospel farther than it would have gotten otherwise. And so many people were down with that that they became the number one crowdfunded thing of all time, right? Well, listen, the church is the OG crowdfunding gospel presentation. That's what we're doing here. You guys are crowdfunding the expansion of the gospel. And maybe like seeing 
a, a, a TV series in that particular way, presented in a culturally legible form, it's real easy to see and grasp onto and catch that vision. But we are doing the same thing. When we give to the church, what you're giving to is the expansion of the gospel out into the world. We're going to talk about our budget. What I'm most proud about of our budget is that about over 90% of our budget is, goes towards mission and ministry, expanding the mission and ministry the wor- into the world. That's what we spend our money on, not building pro- projects, not anything other than that. Uh, and the second thing, second thing, last thing, is that God promises that we will never be able to outgive him. <laughs> listen to all these, listen to these promises. Let, let me read this again. Verses 6 to 11. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, and you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And that, that's where that stuff gets twisted, right? And people come along and say, if you give me $1,000, God will give you $10,000. It's an investment scheme. It's a big Ponzi, multi-level market. The church is a multi-level marketing scam. Give me 1000 bucks, God will give you 10000 bucks. Nowhere in there does he say anything about money. He says he will outgive us, but it says he will give us grace. He will give us sufficiency. He will empower us to good works. He will increase our righteousness. And listen, those things are so much more valuable than money. So much more valuable than money. When I first became a Christian and I first started tithing, Somebody sat down with me and, and told me this, and they were like, God will not let you outgive him. It won't be money, but it'll be something. And I started tithing, and the first thing that happened that I noticed was I became content with what I had. <laughs> Think about that. Think about how valuable that would be <laughs> to be just perfectly content with what you already had. That, that just that lust and that pull of consumerism and the draw of that, the way that advertisements are really just hook you through the nose and pull you into the television and just that drive you have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like anyways, all of that just kind of flattened out and you to be content with the provisions that you had and then that made space for worship and gratitude and glory to God. There's a million ways that God can come through on that promise to outgive us in our giving. It could be just in the joy of participating in ministry and the expansion of the gospel, uh, knowing that, that, that what we're doing in giving isn't just you know, paying the bills this month, but it's sending shockwaves out, hitting the gates of hell, expanding God's kingdom, bringing other people the gift that we've received from Jesus. It may be that, contentment with what you have. It may be 
increasing uh, insufficiency. He may be money. He may give you money so that you can be more generous. He may give you all kinds of things. There's no telling what God will do. What I can guarantee you, though, is what he will give you is going to be way, way better than what you could buy with that money. Amen? Okay. Well, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us to be a giving church. Lord, we pray uh, that you would let us and give us the wisdom, give the leadership wisdom to, to be good stewards of the money that, that you have given us, Lord. But I pray for all of us that we would be so excited about the gospel ministry and so excited and so um, that we would be begging to participate in what you're doing in the world, that we would see the eternal value of what we could invest in and know that we can gain the satisfaction of saying to ourselves, wow, we had a part of bringing the gospel to San Diego, to this city, to those people, to whatever you have us do, Lord. I pray that you would prosper us so that we would be able to give freely. I pray that you would help us uh, to be joyful, to be generous, and I pray uh, that you would uh, prove yourself true, Lord, and that you would outgive us in ways that we couldn't even imagine, and that all of that would then pour out into thanksgiving and praises for you all the more. And so we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.